Hey, listeners, welcome back to this week's episode. We are going to jump right back into our massive coverage of Toby Hooper's A Texas Chainsaw Massacre with our guests Brian Kuyper, Nicole Goble, and Devon Taylor. If you haven't listened to part one yet, it is up there on our feed. We hope you enjoy this one. It's a big one. Overall, like these two parts represent the largest show we've done in three years of existence. I think we got it think we're good so let's dive right back in after this really right it's i mean it's 35 minutes and change in before we get to um before we get to leatherface's introduction like a lot happens before you actually get there the next thing you get is the scene at the barbecue shop in gas station the past couple times i've watched this movie I want to know more about the the guy washing the windows. Yeah. <laughs> right? Which is played by Robert Curtin, a friend of Marilyn Burns, is who she describes him as like this near genius who has this really disarming look. Because you have a dude who's probably in his 20s and he looks like he's in his 40s. Like the, mm-hmm. you just see him and you're like, that is a guy that was born in a, in, in a dad bod, basically. I want to know about this guy because. And again, to my point where like the Sawyer family aren't so much villainous because like they just think they're living their life. And they have this guy who has no idea what they're up to, presumably. Um, and he's just like making a buck washing car windows and pumping gas and, you know, kind of like filling barbecue cups with some slop. And get some free barbecue himself. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I wonder if he does know what's going on. Because, yeah, like, after eating the barbecue enough for free, mm-hmm. you know, for his shift meals, um, mm-hmm. I think he would probably maybe figure it out. And then he goes, oh, well, you know, they're they're nice to me at least. And mm-hmm. I get fed. So maybe he does know and looks the other way. There is, like, uh, a whole, whole world of possibilities with that guy's mm-hmm. backstory. So apparently my wife's uncle lives really close to that gas station mm. and it's it's like a little gift shop touristy spot now with uh mm-hmm. texas chainsaw massacre memorabilia in it so anyway a little side Excellent. note there Excellent. <laughs> like how it becomes in uh, the remake too in the or yeah. not the remake the latest sequel <laughs> i think it's also very like cult mentality where even if you're not participating in a certain set of atrocities you have been indoctrinated to understand like this is part of the system to keep everything moving and so i always assume that kind of these harbinger characters are aware but are like if like i have no ability to really change anything um this is my system. This is the way that I am able to live. 
and it sucks, but I also understand the theology behind it. Where else can you go work if you're this person, right? No, I mean, I think that's exactly it. It's, I don't have any other kind of avenues of employment. And this is tapping, I mean, oftentimes when you get into cults and belief systems, it's chipping away at other kind of core tenements. So I don't know. I, it's not that I think that they shouldn't be able to break away, but at the same time, I understand like, like our community is based on this. Our functionality is based on this. And so I have to be able to continue to bring people in. And I don't know if this place ever, the gas trucks ever stop there. Like the more I watch this, I'm like, there's no gas trucks coming, dude. Um, and when you look later on in the shack, like it's, it's very obvious they're cooking people. Like you're seeing torsos and arms, like, yeah. It's pretty obvious. Like, we know what's going on here. Like, that is not a coyote, sir. That is a man's torso. Um, but we go to the old Hardesty family home, which is completely gutted out. And it's interesting because it's completely gutted and rotted out. And Sally talks about visiting that when she was a girl of like eight or nine years old. And I think these kids are coded as like late teens, early 20s. But this place looks like it's been in disrepair for decades. And Nicole, mm-hmm. I, I've heard mm-hmm. you speak of this scene before. You have a, a very interesting read on it that I have not heard from others. So take it away. Like this is where you start to feel even more empathy for Franklin, where most viewers, I think this is where they're like, all right, dude, I'm, I've had it with you. So take it yeah so basically they get to the franklin homestead um because i think that the last name that they associate with themselves is franklin which i've always struggled with because it's like franklin 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 Franklin. Mm um but so they get to the homestead um first off franklin struggles to even get like to the door Mm -hmm. um and he's pushing himself so everyone's like, peace, we're going upstairs, a place that you cannot go to. And I hope you enjoy yourself by yourself down at the lower level. Um, and I constantly think about like, we are given basically no information about when um, Franklin needed to start using a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. So if this is a family that they spent a lot of time with, which I'm assuming is true because Sally talks about how like, yeah, this was my room and look at my little wallpaper. Like that was so important to me. How the fuck did he even get to a bedroom? Mm -hmm. Because he's just like, sweet, glad you guys can go upstairs. Not for me obviously. And then you have the couple come down that are like, all right, well, we're going to go swimming. He's like, yeah, if you want to go swimming Mm -hmm. and fuck, it's over that way. Like, he's just really shit upon Mm -hmm. in this scene. 
because it's like no one really it just shows how disconnected he is from the experience that everyone else wants to have Mm -hmm. it's also the moment where he does the raspberry Mm -hmm. thing and people are like he's such a like he's so annoying and stupid for doing this but i'm like what else are you gonna fucking do like everyone has left you by yourself you have like you cannot navigate this terrain on your own (laughs) what i would be so mad and i would be throwing not fucking raspberries but bricks Um, being like y'all what the fuck is this i want to go upstairs let me show my bedroom that i slept in let me like show you my experience of living here because this is my family i think if he did that i think if he said like guys what the fuck like don't leave me down here if he did that like i'd have a lot more like sympathy for him than like the raspberries like because it's so ridiculous like in in to be fair, like everyone talks about how much they hated Paul Partain on this set. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Like he's making some very deliberate choices here, I think, yeah. to be annoying as fuck. Like you see that and you're like, you're a grown man blowing raspberries right now. Like, what are you doing? But if I think you- that also speaks to arrested development that folks with disabilities are often kind of pulled into. And again, he's not in the space where he can really say, hey, how about instead of doing this, you do X. He, like, our first entry point into this group is him having to pee in a fucking coffee tin because there's no other space for him to do that. And he topples down a hill and the only person that fucking cares is his sister. Everyone else is like, okay. Do you think the others wanted him there, though? Do you think the others are like, do you have to bring your brother with you? Do you know I what mean, I mean? Like, we, we, we've all had, like, it, that if you've been, like, a big brother or a big sister, like, you know, like, do you have to bring your little brother with you on this trip? And, like, mom makes you do it. You I've know, been I'm not saying that's not the case here. Mm-hmm. I've been that disabled sister mm-hmm. that... Like, my older sister absolutely hates me mm-hmm. and wishes nothing but harm mm-hmm. on me. But growing up, she'd be like, well, I have to babysit her. So, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's coming along. Right. I'm sorry it's about like, it. Not even yeah. disabled, though. I mean, like, just the younger brother-sister dynamic. Like, Charlie but, and Hereditary. Like, you got to bring your younger sister to this party. Charlie was also sister. disabled. That's true. Yeah, not the best example. <laughs> I mean, like, she, I think that, yeah, you know, a, a kid that's not disabled is like, go find your own friends. Go to your own, like, class party. You can't necessarily do that here. And so Sally is kind of a caregiver for Franklin. And so it changed the dynamics. And I think that, yeah, she needed to really fucking set a tone to be like, hey, first off, where I go, Franklin goes. And Franklin's going to be included in all these things. But 
I mean, even going back to the very beginning of the film where she's going through the graveyard, because again, the reason that they're there is because they've heard this news report about um, graves at the cemetery being robbed and disrupted. And so they go and this is Franklin's family too. This is his grandpa. His, like, that's his family, too, but he can't go. He can't check in on this because it's not accessible. And yet, people get really annoyed in terms of, like, well, instead of thinking about, like, how demeaning that beginning section of him having to pee in a coffee tin is, um, how about the fact that he had to depend on someone to, like, will him out and be like I have to pee and be like hey this is my family too grandparents that cared about me but you have to go and do this because I can't make it through here and I get that but I think in this moment here like the specific to this moment a it was Franklin's idea to go back to the grandfather's old home was and it yes he was mm-hmm. the one that was like, it's right near here. Like he's telling us we should go. It's right near here. It's off this road. Like, come on. He, okay. he like, and I think that's part of the annoyance too, is it's like, he's like, they're hot, they're tired. They want to go home. And he, and it's like, okay, we're going to go there. Cause we, you will get you to stop talking about it. And he takes them to this place where like, it's very clear, like, and I, to your point about how long he's been in a wheelchair, I think Kirk and Pam ask like, how did he, get the fuck down to the watering hole when he was a kid. And I think like one of them, I think Kirk says like, well, someone must've carried him when he was little. And I think it's Pam who goes like Franklin was never little. So I think he's always been in that chair, you know, which is like, Hey, fat phobia. Look, as a large man, like not a fan of it, but I think it's just in terms of setting up like how long he's been in that it's been a long time. And he's bringing him to this place that he's obviously not a, to go no and i think that's such an interesting point because i never really thought of it that way i always figured that everything leading up to what we see was really both him and sally because it's their family they were going through um wanted to check on the gravesite. obviously they're near the home um, so one is a stop by, but I appreciate you kind of differentiating the fact that maybe Franklin was the one that was like, we need to stop by Homestead. And I would love to hear kind of other people's reaction to kind I'm of. I was going to say, Brian and Devon, if you want to help me dig myself out of this hole that I've. The the thing I was going to add is, um, you know, the, the where the annoyance can kind of come in with Franklin is like, you know, that in that moment, you know, he has the choice of, you know, obviously he's, you know, upset and, and rightfully frustrated by like the situation of like being left behind. But then kind of like you said, it's like, there's the choice of, okay, well then instead of um, community, like, you know, communicating in a way that's more effective, like you're going to emulate the, the other, the hitchhiker with blowing the raspberries mm. You know, I mean, I guess which, you know, is a point to where like in that moment, that is like the only 
character that Franklin at that point like felt like he had like had like a connection with and like and it was like oh now I kind of feel like you know I get why the hitchhiker is like blowing raspberries or whatever um I could see it kind of uh either ways but then it's like but then again it's like that's where you should where Franklin should think to himself to like separate himself from um someone that like yes they maybe relate he may be related to him on a disability level but then also just on the level of being a person um you can you know communicate your feelings more effectively (laughs) in that way i think from a structural standpoint the fact that he's blowing raspberries is also working to draw connections between this group of people and the sawyers though they're not actually called the sawyers in this movie right um according to Gunnar Hansen, they're the Slaughter family mm-hmm. in this movie, though I haven't seen that sign he's talking about in the book. Me I, neither. Yeah. I haven't yeah. either. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, the because there's, I think that's a thematic underpinning of this is that you have these two forms of family, um, and you know that also plays into again uh, the hills have eyes, where you've got sort of these different types you have the civilized versus the uncivilized whatever you want to call it um and so uh, so the fact that i think um because there there if you include the grandmother there are five members of the sawyer family there are five members of this group um there's and then you have this character that franklin connects with in sort of a unusual way um and so it might have been, I don't know if that was an acting choice on uh, the actor who plays Franklin's part or if it was scripted that way, that they have that connection. I don't know. But uh, there does seem to be a setup of the, be- the beginning of the setup of a parallel between these two types of families that are sort of on a collision course with each other. Yeah, absolutely agree. Like all of the pieces are now set into place. So why don't we move forward and talk about, because now we're about 30-ish minutes into the movie and weird things have happened. Like you get, this scene closes with the kind of like um, bird skull, like the, the bird corpse and the weird, almost like shamanic art that's like hanging in this home now. But now you have like Kirk and Pam hear the generator and make their way over to the Sawyer house. It's absolutely beautiful home, but you can't help but feel like something is off here. Like you see this this weird art hanging in the tree. You see the tattered tent. You you see like the four kind of rundown cars that are all in this pen. Um, And it all builds up to what I think is probably the greatest introduction of a horror movie villain in horror movie history. Yeah. hundred percent agree with that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the sounds that are associated with it and the visuals of it. Um, I mean, how many times have we seen homages, you know, to a leather, sl- leather face slamming the door uh, when he drags them in, is just like, you know, iconic and the way he just like comes out of like nowhere, like the sound design is so quiet. And then like out of nowhere, he's just kind of there. 
um and it's just so very jarring and like uh and like this is where you kind of also like hear like um you know you get nodes of leatherface's personality and just even the noises they makes like you know he's like you know he hits kirk go ahead and like does it but then he's like also like kind of making these like squeal noises uh while he's doing it like because he's like you know he's as surprised as we are like oh like i'm also surprised you're in my house where'd you come from um so it's like he you know just in that little bit you see like you know that he um is also scared and then like kind of has like a moment to himself where he's like all like frustrated you know like i you know didn't really want to do it but you know like this like so much in this like one moment well i would say like it's also really interesting to see um i think in the beginning particularly like i don't know he it's such it's such an iconic moment, but it also sets up the other characters in terms of their relationship with the space mm-hmm. and how they're kind of intruding on this family homestead. And so I really appreciate that as well. Like you get this really quick, brutal entrance to Leatherface, but it's also kind of paired with this idea of like, these are also people that are in like coming on to private property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they're not just like, they're wandering through the property. Like they own it. Like there's this Kirk and Pam, the more I watch this, the more you get the feeling that like, they don't have any sort of compunction about, um, walking around this place like they own the place like of course we belong not here. at all <laughs> you know and like i you know the other day like i went to visit my supervisor for a session at her place at her home and she usually answers a door for me but she didn't answer this time and she's you know a little bit older so i wanted to make sure she was so i went in and i scared the bejesus out of the woman who was not you know, and her dog, by the way, did nothing to like warn her I was there. He saw me and then ran, got himself a cookie and then ran back um, <laughs> to the couch. Um, but she jumped and I felt so bad. Like I normally would not ever go into someone's home without them letting me in. Um, but you get this moment where Gunnar Hansen definitely fills that door frame. And you only see him briefly while he raises the hammer. And I think what's fascinating here is it's not the first blow that kills Kirk. Um, It is the second blow. Like you see the body spasming. And I think uh, they talk about how like just a shard of brain, probably a shard of skull went into his brain, but it's that second thunk that hits. And then the body stops, He drags him in and you get that, door slam shut and you get the soundtrack note that follows it but also you know a lesser movie would follow that shot you would follow leatherface into the butcher shop but this movie is saying like hey look you're not meant to see this this is private this is a ritual this is not for your eyes you can imagine what's going on back here and it it, it makes it all that that door slamming shut is what eventually lends this scene so much power, I think. And again, it's that 35 minutes leaning up to it where there's been so much discomfort 
of what's going on. Like no real horror, no real terror, but just uneasiness. I can't imagine, again, being in an audience in 1974 and watching this happen and how I would react. Like it is, it just, it's a whole, it launches a genre in and of itself. I couldn't imagine watching this in 1974. Like, honestly, like, yeah, like witnessing this moment, it would just be, it just would be like, wait, like what is happening? Like is, and like, cause it's so memorable and you already like have so many questions about Leatherface, you know, like you're like, you're like, was he wearing somebody's face? Like, what is he doing? And he's in his, he's a butch in a butcher's outfit. So it's like, okay, does he work down at the slaughterhouse? Okay. Now I'm connecting the dots. to when the hitchhiker is like, Oh no, my brother works at the slaughterhouse, not me. Um, so you're, and then like kind of now connecting those moments, like you said, like after all the buildup of being like, Oh, okay. So now we are at the hitchhiker's home. And like, if we've seen, what he's like who knows what the rest of uh, the night is in store to be all right so we've covered the introduction of leatherface which again probably the most iconic introduction of any villain in a horror film um i can't think of one that's better and the next thing we have like what's really great about this movie is there's no from this point on from like 35 minutes in there's like no break in the, in it whatsoever. Like it doesn't let up. So you have like Kirk getting slammed in the head with a sledgehammer and convulsing and that door slams. And you think you're going to pause and kind of catch your breath. But the next thing you have is probably the shot in the film that this is best known for. It's the one that like directors comment about when they talk about this movie. And it is Terry McKin- McMinn as Pam kind of like walking to the house from the swing set. And as she gets closer to the house, it just looms larger and larger over her until it looks like when she walks in there, it looks like the house is just swallowing her whole. It's very, very haunting. Yeah. And some I didn't really think about because I mean, obviously like, you know, we, we, whenever we think of the iconic shots, like, you know, the focus is on, you know, we got booty, which is always, which is always welcome. But I didn't even think of it like, yeah, from the angle that it's coming at, like just because of like the, the weird angle, it it feels more intrusive in that way as well. So like, it feels more intrusive the, the way that it's looking at her. But then, like you said, with the, the house kind of in the foreground, like, you know, literally devouring her as we're kind of touching on, you know, a lot of eating of people within the movie. So, I didn't really think about that. I think it also just highlights the kind of wide open space that they're in and how tiny claustrophobic the house feels once the action gets there. Because when you're traveling with the group and you're outdoors, you're at kind of the family home, everything just feels very, I don't know, it's very rural, it's very wide open not closed in but the minute that you start to get into uh the family the Sawyer family home it just kind of becomes really kind of claustrophobic close and scary then of course just from a technical standpoint that is amazing that on such a low budget you know with so little resources shooting in 16 millimeter that they were able to get a shot that looks that incredible is is astonishing and it's um it really holds up it's it's just fantastic moment it's one that hooper and henkel had to fight for 
Um, it, by this point, like obviously there had been delays on the shoot. The money was drying up and one of the producers turned up and was adamant that they stick to a shot list. So like Hooper's like, all right, I'll come up with a shot list, but then I'm just going to do whatever I want because it's my movie. And on the day of the shoot, the producer said, well, you've gotten all your shots already, like wrap it up, let's go home. And Hooper was adamant about getting the shot to the point where the producers are, were said, we'll fire you and Hooper, mm-hmm. if you shoot this. And Hooper said, I'll quit if you don't let me. And obviously he won out and they got the shot. They had 40 feet of like dolly track. They laid it on the ground. And I think Pearl basically got on his belly and they had basically uh, your PAs lifting the swing set up as Terry McMinn is getting off it so that he could get under it uh, and follow her as slow as possible and staying as low to the ground as possible. Uh, So it's a technically brilliant shot. It's actually one that, uh, Ed Neal said that he was hired for JFK by Oliver Stone just so that Stone could basically talk about this shot and ask how Hooper was able to do it, which I mean, it's crazy without like the like you said, like because the dolly track didn't really come around till Jaws, which would be a year later. So it's like this is still before some of those things that made you know, these shots like as, as fluid as they are, you know, so it's like the, yeah, the, the like smooth and like smoothness and grace of the shot is like very surprising just considering like a year later, they would actually have the technology to really make those shots, you know, uh, better. You, you go from this, you're in the home and this is where your set designer, uh, Robert Burns, like it's where he starts to really earn his money. And I don't think we can talk about this movie without talking about the iconic set design, starting with this room, which McMinn stumbles into it. And again, as she's talked about in her experience of making this movie, when she's stumbling into the room, she's hitting that um, bucket over and over again. They don't put anything on it to protect her. So she's really bruising herself. And you look up and the first thing you notice is she's covered in feathers. Like it's almost comical. I'm mean, thinking of like Gene Wilder in Stir Crazy for a minute right now, like just covered in feathers. And then you look around and there's like the floor is like littered with bones. And then you have this couch, which seems to be made out of human bones. And it considering where horror was at this time, and it's just now starting to come out of like Gothic castles and these, you know, European landscapes where, you know, you have adults that are dealing with adult things now you have this really horrific scene that I don't know who would be prepared for this in 1974. I mean, it's like it's the worst version of whenever you go over to a friend's house for the first time and then you find out that that friend is very dirty <laughs> and you're just like, I don't yeah. want to walk. I don't want to like even touch my feet on the ground, like because like the 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 amount of feathers and all the like mm-hmm. stuff in the room, like really it. it adds so much texture to the to the film and uh texture is a big thing for me uh, especially in horror films like if i can really like see something and like either feel it or or if a, a, a image like gives me that like whenever the back of your mouth starts watering not because it like looks tasty but because it's gross like if a when a film can like do that just off of visuals alone like that says a lot and the set design of this film uh is just like super integral in that um, you know, and, and 
the way that they're like again like whenever she like walks in and the way it's like kind of cutting around it's like cutting to her face and all these things and she's like horribly gasping like that's like more of like again like uh my uh wes anderson uh isms in this mm-hmm. film um especially like when it just like cuts to the, like you know just the chicken itself it's like we well, you don't need that shot in here but we put it there because it's funny you know so uh, a little bit of that i think it's great storytelling too it's a great way to use kind of the the set dressing and the environment to really fill in gaps because again this is at least in my experience a film that when i went into it i expected it to be so gory and just blood filled and you know chunks of flesh flying every which way and having this kind of carnage integrated into the scenery really fills in that gap it's not gory but it's from a sensory for me my senses just kind of go into overload during this because there's just so much that the camera's taking in so much that your eyes are taking you can almost for me the sense that i get is it must stink in there it must smell really really bad uh and that's kind of the feeling that i get and that's part of why i say this is a movie you can practically smell uh, is is just the inside of that house. You can feel the oppressiveness. You can feel the heat, and you see all that stuff in there. And you go, you know, how long has it been laying around? <laughs> and this, the odor would probably practically hit you in the face. Um, it would be, and you can feel that so much. You can, and I, I look the look on the actors' faces in this too when they're inside the house is like they're experiencing something pungent (laughs) you know and we'll definitely talk more about the smells of this movie in a little bit because that was a thing uh, about this movie was how nauseous it made everybody making it and how Gunnar Hansen was basically isolated from the rest of the cast for the last week or two of it because of how bad he smelled when he was in that outfit speaking of the house we get to note a couple things here People lived in this house. Like this was not something that was built on a set. This was an actual living room, in an actual dining room, an actual kitchen in a home. It was basically like a shared home, group of like young men and women, you know, hippies, like living the commune lifestyle that were friendly with like Hooper and the film crew. And they were offered They offered use of their house, and in return, I think they were going to get their rent paid that month, which we consider it's like 1974 in Texas is probably pretty low, like probably not a great deal of of rent. Um, And they're like, we'll be there week, two weeks tops. Don't worry about it. And uh, we will leave the house as we found it. Like, don't we won't do anything too bad to it. And then you think of like what they imported into the house, like just get bags and bags of bones into here um the head cheese the rotting meat um we'll talk in a little bit about the animal carcasses that were brought in so instead of bones it was going to be basically dead animals that were going to litter the scape here and uh daniel pearl's uh wife dotty pearl like actually injected herself accidentally with formaldehyde um trying to preserve and then they decided like it wasn't the right look. So they tried burning all the bodies of the dead animals out back while they're filming the dinner scene and they don't have enough gas. Yeah. So you go out to get your head cleared 
and you're smelling dead animal carcass burning. That's so gross. And you also got to think too, um, film sets are really hot. You know, it's a lot of lights and it gets really hot. So like that already with the stuff uh, on the set is just absolutely disgusting. I'm in a room right now where like I'm a bit sweaty. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a shower after this. I share the room with my rabbit and we need to change her litter box out. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit stinkier than I like right now in here. So I do feel like maybe we're being simpatico with the movie in some ways. But um, there is nothing like what uh, we had going on in uh, Texas, obviously. I'm going to pause for one second. So then we go from her, you know, Pam does the smart thing and says, like, Kirk who? You know, don't know anyone named Kirk. Hasn't been someone named Kirk around here in years. And then runs for the door only to be accosted by a six foot four, 300 pound maniac wearing human skin. And this is another scene done over and over again to the point where poor Terry McMinn screams herself hoarse and needs to like down shots of bourbon in between takes in order to restore her voice. And by the way, like as she's leaving the set each night of this movie, she's doing like a local theater play as well. So she has to go and, you know, hit all her lines for that after doing stuff like this all day. Poor Gunnar Hansen manages to knock himself out during one of the takes because he is a very large man. He's in lifts. He cannot see out of this mask. And he like smacks the back of his head in the uh, door frame, knocks himself out. When he comes to, they're like, are you good? Like, are you all right? He's like, sure. And then they immediately start filming yeah. again because that's this movie. I mean, again, though, the, the, the results are, um, you know, it's such an iconic imagery of like, you know, we've seen it again. It's like kind of one of those ones that's been homage before. And, and there's something about it, you know, the way that she goes to like run and then like, you know, the way he catches her like and pulls her back in, like, you know, that that's kind of at this point of the film too, where it's like, no, this is definitely the point. No return. Like you're, you're done. Like you had your opportunity to, uh, get out safely and, uh, you didn't take it, yeah. and now, now you are like in for the rest of it, and and it and it feels like almost there's a, there's a lot of scenes in this uh, with Leatherface, especially like it that feel like almost like dance like like the the way that like he whenever she like goes and he like catches her uh, in midair, it's like it's almost dirty dancing esque, um, but but um, Texas Chainsaw Edition, so it's uh it's it's really great. I really love it. So what you're saying is nobody puts baby in a corner, but they do. They do. That's exactly what they do. Leatherface is baby. Poor baby. Yeah, they put baby on a meat hook. (laughs) So that was a bad joke. Don't know if we'll keep it. Oh, no, you're keeping Uh, it. (laughs) Speaking of the meat hook, how many times was it that you saw this movie before you realized you never see her impaled on the meat hook? I think I had read about it ahead of time, so I kind of knew that was the case, but it didn't lessen the impact to know how little blood and um, that you don't see the hook go in. Um, It it didn't lessen the impact because I think her performance is so strong in that uh, and she kind of reacts the way you would. I mean, she reaches up, tries to pull herself off the thing, um, and that really goes a long way to sell it 
And the and the sound design choice too is very fascinating because like whenever she gets impaled, like there's no sound. The the score itself kind of um and it's it's which is it's fascinating because like the rest of the movie like is just so loud after this like um once the now that we're like really getting going like the movie just becomes like relentlessly uh loud uh but so it's fascinating that this scene is just like the only sound is her screaming and like that's literally it like even like the impaling of it like you don't hear um any of it so it's fascinating that we're still able to without the visual of it without the sound of it yet we still fill in these blanks on like it being this gruesome scene. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the performance itself with the struggling against the meat hook and um, really selling it um, because it, I think like Devon perfectly stated, it fills in so many gaps of that experience. So you don't need every other kind of sensory clue to say this is what's going on. So I think it's, I think I noticed it, I think maybe the first time that you don't actually see, like, it jab, um, just because I'd watched a lot of body horror and stuff, so I was used to, like, actual penetration into skin, into organs and stuff, and I was like, oh, well, that's still really upsetting, and I can imagine every thing that's happening on that back, so I, it's, I think that and that tracking shot going up to the house, I think, for me, are two of, like, uh, I think two of the visuals that stick with me the most. Yeah, I, I think it took me a while, in all honesty, to, to, to notice that it didn't go in. Um, and I wonder if I actually, to your point, Brian, like, read about it before going back and rewind, going like, well, that can't be right, and then going back and watching it again, because as all of you have said, like your mind fills in so many of the blanks for you that you think you see a lot more than you actually do. And I think in particular, McMinn's choice to kind of reach behind her and try to like feebly pull herself up, um, adds so much more to that moment. And then when you pull back and this is like when the movie starts to get very, very loud, you hear like the first revving of that chainsaw and it starts right up. Um, and she is watching her boyfriend, Kirk, like carved up in front of her while she's hanging on that hook. And it's just trying to piece all of that together, like just makes your brain start to melt. And then again, no letting up. You go back to the van. You have Jerry, Sally and Franklin. And Jerry's like, you know what? I'm going to go and see what's going on. What's taking these guys so long? Um and then you go, you're right back in the house again, and you get this great jump scare with um, with Pam's body coming out of the freezer. And then you get like Leatherface rushing in with the hammer. And apparently they kept uh, Hanson away from the actor who played Jerry. Um, so like when he sees him for the first time, that was a real reaction. And the first time they did it, the actor just ran screaming out of the house. Uh, just like turned and ran out. So they kind of had to like on the next tape, keep them like in Um, and you get that thunk and it just doesn't let up. Jerry would do that. I don't like Jerry. Yeah. We've got to talk about that. I, I, this, this Jerry dislike is because he's so much of a blend. He doesn't do anything. That's yeah, exactly. (laughs) He, 
like he's such a non-entity to me i mean at least um there i don't know he's you could have him be an uber driver mm-hmm. and it would be the same thing sure like he, he just doesn't add anything in terms of like a character that you really get any connection with outside of he's dating sally um everyone else just has like these little moments i mean and oddly enough though like yeah i think he's the most boring and i don't really care for him but it's still really upsetting when he dies because you're like he wasn't like he wasn't an asshole like all these people are fine um so yeah it's kind of interesting Mm. but um yeah i i remember reading something about gunner being kept away from that actor and i found that really kind of entertaining i mean i i feel like him being like such an innocuous character i mean at, at this point too um, you realize like the pace is like picking up so much faster. Like it's like I mean we kind of really go from from Kurt to Pam to to Jerry now. Like it goes like so fast. Like now it's just like um, and and as they're happening faster, and that's this is like also like when we like start seeing Leatherface's like frustration now because like after he kills jerry that's whenever he like kind of has his like little fit to himself you know of like being like oh my god like what is happening i really did not plan on killing all these people today yeah he he is scared and like you can really like see that and um it's one of my favorite uh Mm -hmm. scenes of gunner hansen's performance like because like he he does so much with um the the little body language ticks that he has like the way he like kind of rocks back and forth and he's always throughout the movies constantly Mm -hmm. licking his teeth and like he just like has uh this like very this anxiousness to him throughout like even after you know you're seeing him do these horrific acts but then like uh something about it is like you know when you see this you know six foot four man become you know have these actions that show him to be very small um is is fascinating i really love that in his performance it's almost like, you know, who are these people and why do they keep coming into my house? And uh, and he's defending himself. I don't know if you guys have seen, I don't know if you guys have seen to 10, but um, the, the, the scene early on uh, in the, in the house um, feels very much like that when she's just like, where are you coming from? Um, and just like keep slaughtering them. And like, that's what uh, it, it feels like an homage to Texas Chainsaw. Well, I think it also speaks to what makes Leatherface interesting is that, you know, you have kind of these uh, silent and cold killers that don't show any emotion when they're doing what they do. Mm, And it mm -hmm. is really interesting to see a personality come through and feeling like the feeling overwhelmed, feeling scared, being like my home is being invaded Um, and it's interesting. I think it ultimately does, you know, you get into the whole discussion of, well, does this change the way that you think about Leatherface in terms of like, he's overwhelmed and scared and this is how he's, he deals and has been taught to deal with people entering into his space. But yeah, to me, it's kind of what makes this film and just the character of Leatherface throughout all the other 
iteration so interesting. It's almost like Peck and Paw and Straw Dogs, and that you have these outsiders, these kind of intruders that are invading on the home space. And what separates Leatherface from Michael or Freddy or Jason is like they're those are just straight up like killers and thrill killers, and they're doing it for the sake of it. And I think what the sequels to this franchise don't get right and i hate using that phrase but like where it loses a lot of the power that the original has in the sequels like the leatherface and the family are much more proactive killers like they're actively seeking out victims in every other sequel except to be quite honest maybe the 2013 leatherface 3d movie where he's kind of just in the basement on his own but in all the others, like they're very proactive in seeking out meat for the family. Here, it is more, I don't even like to use the word opportunistic killing because I don't think that they're trying to lure anybody in. It's like, it's reactionary in a way for sure, but it's like in that way that they they do it knowing it, you know, that they, and that's like why they're so so easily able to like rationalize it because there's like oh well you know it's gonna happen like somebody's gonna come along and they're gonna be stupid and they're gonna trespass and then up oh, well now we have to kill them and we or we get to kill them even but like you said like i i definitely don't feel like they're luring uh anyone um you know like as far as like when the hitchhiker like kind of marks them uh, at the beginning is just because like, you know, would he have done that if they kind of weren't such assholes to him? Um, you know, would they, would he have done that? Uh, who knows, you know, for all we know, he just like was, you know, he just kind of has these interactions with people and he's kind of the like litmus test, but I don't think that they are actively doing it. And that's why it's funny that like, in uh, the most recent Texas Chainsaw that people, uh, they're like, you know, like, oh, and, uh, you know, like giving uh, Leatherface, like, you know, more of a reason to to um, be doing this, you know, versus like in all the other ones, like, um, like you said, uh, they kind of lose that after this film. So it's like um, interesting that it came back around. I don't even think that the hitchhiker is marking them per se like he's just bleeding from the hand after cutting himself and like smacking you know he's smacking the van at that point because when they get to the gas station the cook even like tells them like doesn't even warn them like you don't want to go to this place he's like you just you don't want to go there like don't waste your time there's nothing for you there he's like not encouraging them to go and he's not discouraging them in a way like you don't want to go to the old fireworks factory you know, where they have like fireworks and free sex, like you definitely don't want to go there. And there's candy, you know, and drugs, like you don't want anything to do with the fireworks and drugs factory. No, he's like straight up, like, just go on your way, go home, go on the road, like there's nothing for you there. And he's like paternalistic about it. And here, what what I love about Hanson's portrayal is like the self-soothing you get, like you see him freaking out over these three people that have come like he peers out the window like what does he do like the first thing he does is he mm-hmm. runs to the window he looks out it and he's like are there more of them is this over um mm-hmm. well when he sits down what finally calms him down is when he starts running his tongue over his teeth and you see that as like a self-soothing gesture um and hooper you know, used a phrase to describe leatherface that i'm not going to use right now but i think that 
Leatherface is clearly coded as a developmentally disabled adult. And you see a lot of the traits of mm -hmm. some forms of autism. And I, I am always sensitive to discussing autism whenever we discuss about developmental disabilities or disabilities in general, just because there's such stigma around it. And it is such a broad spectrum that it can present in so many ways. But you do see like the stemming and self-soothing, the difficulty in like verbal communication, the different rituals, like you can see like the masks in particular, um, they represent like a different ritual or a different time or a, a different activity for him, which is why he switches them out. So even within the dinner scene, he switches them out three times for different phases of that dinner because there's a different phase of the dinner. So I've always seen it kind of, kind of have seen it like that. Um, but it's what lends Leatherface like a lot more empathy. Oh yeah. Like it, it definitely feels like it's, it's comforting, you know, for, uh, to be like, okay, like in this scenario now, like I need to be this way. And so let me get into this outfit. And it, it definitely makes him like feel, feel more comfortable. And like, and that's, you know, you, and you can sense that, you know, like that's really all he cares about, um, you know, is like, you know, like, Hey, I just kind of want to be in my house. I want to, you know, I'll do what I need to do for my family and like whatever they ask me to do, but like, I just want to do that. I don't want to do um these extra things but like you know does it in a way that it's um again you know like trying to you know comfort his family by protecting them uh you know also still kind of you know gives him some sense of uh purpose i'd i'd like to think and um and and it is a reason that leatherface is kind of one of has always been one of my favorite slashers. I mean, they they maintain this pretty well uh, up until the the remake. I would say um, is kind of where they really mm -hmm. start to like kind of lose that. But like you know, consistently through the first three, you know, Leatherface definitely um, always has a, this like kind of pressure on him. Um, but again, he's also just simply doing you know what anybody else would do is like you know I you know I will protect my family at whatever at whatever cost that is and you know he's gotten so used to you know just being you know the way that it, he's been raised and um that it's become normalized in a in a sense to him um is makes it very fascinating to me and um you know because he is like you know visually the the most scary of any of the family members yet at the same time like as far as like the the depravity um, or like, or at least for his intent of it is, you know, he's at the bottom, which is fascinating. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that I find really interesting kind of in juxtaposition of Leatherface and Jason, because they both hit very similarly to me in that they're both trying to protect their home turf for, I think, different reasons. Um, and I think what is really interesting with Leatherface is that I like what Devon was saying about kind of protecting the family and some of the, the ideas there, but I often wonder like, is he, because he seems to be operating from a point of fear um, often, like, is he, is he protecting his family or is this just kind of what he's been 
tuned to do because of his size, of his physical abilities. Like, you know, we can't have grandpa going and chasing people in the woods. Grandpa has a very specific skill set. So this is going to be yours. You're going to be kind of the muscle. And so I I do find that really interesting just in thinking, like, I, I see Devon's point as well of protecting the family because there is, especially, I think, early on with that first kill with the iconic kind of door open or intro, um, there is that protective nature, but it just seems to kind of go against the, you know, the frightened uh, kind of moments and almost like the vulnerability that he shows in, in what he's doing. But yeah. I mean, it's funny that it's like, you know, it's such a terrifying iconic image and it's so scary, but also in a sense, it's just like a little kid, like slamming his door shut. Like, no, I don't want you to see what I'm doing in here. Like, this is like me time. Like, and, uh, so it's fascinating. That's like, you know, so, so terrifying in a way, but it also is like so terrifying for him. And you see that later on in the movie when he's interacting with the cook in particular, who, you know, there's alternating theories like is the cook an older brother or is the cook an uncle? And I think I lean more towards uncle than brother. But you see how eager he is to please the cook. Like he's trying to explain to him in his own his own like limited ways. Like, no, like I, I got all of them. Like we got it. We're good. And he's like nodding his head. And you see his whole posture go from like, ramrod straight and imposing mm-hmm. to like he's hunched over so that he's in a more submissive he's in a more submissive position to the cook who he could pull off that dude's arms like they were <laughs> butterfly wings if he wanted to but the conditioning that mm-hmm. he's had to your point nicole like he's been operantly trained by the family like this is your role and whether it's like you prepare the meat or protect the households you see all the various roles that he's fulfilling and how he goes about and how he tries to please his family. Yeah, and I think it's just interesting, too, talking about, like, the roles of the various family members. There's that comment from the gas station attendant, the uncle, who is telling the brother, like, you were supposed to keep an eye on him. Um, So, again, here's this really kind of... uh, tiny in stature guy that is supposed to be keeping this kind of giant man in check. Mm -hmm. And again, I think it goes to that conditioning of, all right, we're going to, you know, really drill it into you. Um, Like this is kind of what you're supposed to do and you can't operate outside of these um, kind of parameters. So I just find kind of those moments of interaction between um, the family really, really interesting. I definitely want to talk more about the dynamics with the foursome as we, especially when we get into the dinner scene here, we'll kind of weave that in, weave that in. Because I think that is what separates this movie and where it gains a lot of its power. If it's just Leatherface on its own, it's a much less interesting movie. Still very mm. interesting. They've made yes. that movie since <laughs> since this They've one, where it's it. just it hasn't worked quite as well. Um, we get back to no. the van, <laughs> and I think this might be Paul Pertain's most sympathetic moment in portraying Franklin now, and it is because obviously, like I'm the one that's been the harshest on Franklin, as we've discussed this movie, and I've 
had no bones about that. But in rewatching the movie a few times, with trying to bear in mind, like trying to be more sympathetic or empathetic, this is the scene I think that lent to me. I felt more empathetic towards him seeing it from his perspective where he and, and Sally, and it's, you know, noted, should note here that Marilyn Burns like hated Paul Bertain on this set. And a lot of like the interactions between them, like what lends them so much of that, that authenticity is that she was annoyed constantly by him as were many other members of the set. And I think Hooper did, did pertain no favors by constantly being like the whispering in other people's ear. Like Hooper acted like the middle schoolers that I'm a counselor for at my school where he in essence would be like, I don't know if you know, but he said this. And like, if it was me, I wouldn't take that from him. I don't know what you're going to do about it, but like, I wouldn't take that shit. You know, he was basically stirring the drama pot. Um, so when you see them interact at the van, like that weariness on Sally's part and that just wanting to get away from him is like very real, but there's no good option for Franklin here. He either goes with Sally over terrain that he can't navigate, quite possibly to his death where he cannot fend for himself at all, or he stays at the van completely alone and isolated and there's no escape from him either way. He's either completely isolated there and stuck, or he just, I don't know, like wilts to death in the sun. Yeah, and then plus it's like also getting dark at this point too, so um, you definitely kind of feel uh, the, the the tides shifting, uh, and it feels, um, you know, like scarier uh, to that point. But yeah, so it, it definitely, yeah, it because at that point now I'm like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, Franklin, I, I totally get you. Like you, we just kind of like, this has kind of gone on way too long. Like, you know, we uh, took too much time to, you know, do things that we shouldn't have been doing anyways. And like, now look at what we're doing. So um, the, this is definitely the the point at which I am on, um, on board with Franklin. Um, and and I, I think he finally has kind of read the situation uh, to be as serious as what it truly is. And then, you know, um, and he's not acting as uh, immature. He's acting a lot more reasonably. I think it also underscores the fact, like, with Sally saying, give me the flashlight, I'm going to go, you just hang back here. I think it underscores kind of his point of frustration and is that, no one that he's with really understands that he doesn't have easy access, that he doesn't kind of have kind of the same ability to protect himself, to kind of move around himself. He's really reliant on his sister and their traveling companions. And so I, I think that the scene really, it, I, again, I have really strong feelings about Franklin very positive feelings, but I think that this is a really great scene where it's taken down, like he takes it down like 10 notches and is able to, I think in a more kind of calm and rational way, speak to that more concisely to his sister to, I think the point that she understands and is like, fine, you can come with. And poor Sally, like Mm -hmm. it's incumbent on her to, kind of move him around 
through, again, terrain that's very difficult and she's frightened and scared. Uh, and there's just not a good solution for either of them. And it's a, and it's an interesting, I mean, like, I mean, this is earlier than a lot of other slashers, but like uh, going forward, you know, the, the final girls have, um, you know, even though they're usually um, protecting like a child, uh, in their in their scenarios like even that case like yeah that's a that's hard um, but you know at least unless they're injured there's usually um, a little bit more uh, mobile or or a little bit more it, it, it they present their own challenge like in in the fact of like you know trying to like uh, keep them calm and like you know a rational for their maturity level versus um, you know in the in terms of uh, things that Sally has to overcome throughout the film, uh, you know, her different challenges, um, having, you know, to make that decision of, okay, like, you know, I will bring my brother, even though this is going to be difficult. Um, this is going to make things 10 times more dangerous, but she, you know, again, like, um, it's the dichotomy of, you know, she's willing to do what she needs to do for her family because she knows it's the, um, you know, thing that she needs to do, even though, um, even, even if it might, even be a better option for you know like as as much as like as terrifying as it would be for franklin be left alone at the van um in the grand scheme of like how much ground they have to cover like because once we like really get a lay of the geography of uh this place like it's uh, there's a lot you know like it might have been uh easier for her just like kind of be like all right i'm a i'm a track star it and kind of uh do that but um but but again, she does make that decision because it is her brother, and she you know feels that she needs to. So we do we see them navigate the train, and you get the bloodiest death in the movie when you get a terrific jump scare where they're just like they're crawling out, and again you have like your eyes are trained in a very specific direction, like the flashlight is just off center, it is to the left of the screen. You hear them calling out. And through that gap, that that black corridor, Leatherface comes comes rushing out. Chainsaw starts right up, and you get the bloodiest death in the movie, which again is just a very small trickle, like a smattering of blood on that apron. It's, a, it's still after, and they're shooting this chronologically after everything you've seen so far. Hooper is still like, I don't know, guys. I think that PG. I think we can get it. I think we can. I mean, it's really just a testament to to Leatherface. I mean, he's just very efficient. He's very clean. Um, you know, that's a that's a, a particular skill that is uh, unmatched in the butcher world. Uh, keeping your apron that clean. So you know, it's just that's a testament to his skill. Franklin is no more, and Sally sees what happens to her brother, and she hightails it out of there. Like she is just like whoop. You know, like he's dead and like there's no trying to pull the brother. I mean, what can she do? You know, so she runs away as fast as she can, which according to Gunnar Hansen wasn't very <laughs> fast. Um, he talks in his book, Chain Confidential. He's like, I had to keep stopping to like carve things up because I was just going to overtake her. Like she's really oh, slow. And that, that's um, funny because you do notice that like he's, he's constantly mm-hmm. just like swinging around, like cutting branches that he doesn't really yep. need to cut down. Uh, and, no. and, and uh, as much as, 
Sally does have the cardio. She does not have good running form. Mm-hmm. Um, she like she at all, and it and it very much adds to the expression of Sally, like kind of just like this uh kind of flail about way that she's going, and yeah. like she's you know the the trope yeah. of like kind of tripping. Uh, this is uh one of my favorite uh on foot chase scenes, not only in horror films but in mm-hmm. just like film in general. Um, it is a relentless from uh, the 52 30 second mark to 58 minutes until she uh, is at the gas station. So this is seven and a half minutes and you really like get the geography of like, okay, like how much distance is between the two houses, between where the van was mm-hmm. and where the gas station where she literally makes laps mm-hmm. back and forth, makes it to the house, in the house, out the house um starting also one of my favorite tropes in uh horror films is people jumping out of windows and this is the first time that she jumps out a window we'll uh get another one later on and um but this uh quick question quick question devon have any of you ever jumped out a window and is it i mean i've i've jumped out windows but not like i haven't broken uh, a, a window That's no I mean. like, like not through right. uh yeah no not through glass i feel like i would just bounce off it i've i've jumped through uh like yeah. the the screen <laughs> like when the windows open i busted that screen out you know but uh not mm-hmm. not quite um not quite as flashy as when you break a uh, glass jumping out the window nicole i think i saw you nod your head yeah. yes so you've jumped out glass windows yeah before. um there was this old abandoned house that was near where I grew up. And of course, being a young kid shouldn't have been kind of roaming around playing in the house, but was, um, ended up getting stuck um, on like the second floor um, because Mm -hmm. they had like a, I don't know, it was, don't know what, kind of house or like what kind of thing it was before um but it had like this little elevator thing and so instead of just finding a staircase to go down i was like well i'm just gonna bust out this window and jump off this little ledge thing and i did and that's why i'm a climber today i think my uncle might have run through a like a screen like a glass door when he was a kid and like and got like seriously injured doing it um as i recall from mm-hmm. my mom's stories of it you know he like blood lots of blood you know uh like hospital stay kind of kind of injured um breaking and it was an accident you know he was just like running and just like plowed right through it uh so I don't think it's an easy task, you know. I've never had the opportunity to jump out of a window. I feel like I haven't lived much of a life. Um, <laughs> one of the things I noted re-watching this was, you know, when Sally goes into that room and she sees Grandpa, and then she sees, like, the grandmother, the the only female member of the, the, the Sawyer clan, um she doesn't have a face like she has no skin on her face and i'm wondering if one of the faces like maybe the cook face or maybe the pretty woman face is actually grandma's skin i don't know if that's ever i kind of assume that it's like the the 
the preparer, you know, the, the old woman who's cooking face uh, that he wears. That's, that was my assumption maybe. Um, Cause you know, like the hair is done up in a certain way and everything. Um, it's like, this is the uh, sort of the model of motherly nurture that he had. And so he's uh, trying to emulate that. Um, so what better way to pay homage to her than to, you know, take off her face and use it. You know, if it was 2022, we could just record a few snippets of her voice and play it through your Alexa, right. which is not creepy. That's not creepy at all, no. And, and, and won't, be, won't be abused in really awful ways to psychologically damage people in the future. Um, I can just imagine, like, Alexa, have my dad tell me I'm worthless and just, like, have that be used. Um couple other notes here watching Gunnar Hansen run like that big kind of shaggy loping run that he does like I think of like Sweetums from the Muppets oh totally I can't get that image like just like really got that image of being chased by a giant Muppet and Devon to your point about how much distance is is covered when they're in the woods Nicole you okay (laughs) Um, i think you got her when they're in the woods when you're in the then their woods running all of the woods it's all one 40 foot track basically all of that ground that's covered they just basically lay down that 40 foot piece of track in tons of different spots so they can give it the appearance of running miles, but actually I mean, only covering it. It definitely does feel like you know, a NASCAR race because this like, thing literally goes on and on and mm-hmm. on. And I mean, oh, yeah. and, and kudos to Leatherface, mm-hmm. our, our king of cardio, because uh, when you think of a lot of the other slashers, there's, there's mm-hmm. nobody really runs. Uh, Fred, Freddie, Freddie runs a couple times, That's right. Um, but he doesn't really need to. Cause he can like, he's the one that can like actually teleport, but like, uh, none of the other slashes run. Uh, I mean, Chucky, Chucky runs, but he kind of has to because he has tiny legs. And unless you're like Baghead Jason, Baghead Jason runs. Yeah, yeah. But I, I mean, I think between Leatherface and Chucky, it'd be interesting because Chucky technically doesn't have a cardiovascular system. So I mean, I think he would still outpace uh, Leatherface, uh, but not by much. But his- battery his battery would eventually oh that is true you know he could be going for a while and then you have to replace those d-cell batteries and then plus leatherface is also he's also carrying like a 30 pound chainsaw so imagine how fast he would be it's like you know when i used to run like years ago because fuck that noise uh in 2022 um you know, I would put like the little weights on and when I wrestled, I would wear a garbage bag under my sweatshirt and then run stairs with the dude bigger than me on my back. And you know what? Hey, I'm never, I am what the fuck? Um, bad choice. Bad choices all around. So just those little one pound weights on the wrist and the ankles would never mind carrying a chainsaw around. Imagine how fast that dude would be. I mean, that he would have been easily qualifying for like the four by one. Leather Leatherface is like Goku. He uh, his apron is actually weighted, and if he took it off, like he would just be too much. Uh, he would he would be unstoppable. Um, he'd be a a, a a key member on my um, Slasher Olympics 2024 team. 
Well, it's very much like, you know, when you're going on like a hiking or climbing trip, you'll go to the gym and like get on the stair machine with like your full pack on so that your body gets acclimated and comfortable to carrying it. I think one of the things that I really love, and this is going back to, I think, a really um, neat point that um, I think Mike, you and Devon made about Sally during kind of the chase sequence. One of the things, and I know this is going to sound so terrible, one of the things that I absolutely hate are like these moments of just unbridled athleticism from final girls that are babysitters in high school um that I'm like no you are not gonna like do a full like floor gymnastics routine to get through this section of the house to evade the killer and so I like kind of the the sloppiness of Sally's run and just again kind of the panic to it it's very very real and I think the same thing with Leatherface like yeah he's a big man he can move with a quickness um but I think it to me it makes sense because I'm like well this is his role this is what he does like he is the muscle I would assume in the family so he probably is out you know uh getting lots of kind of that physical exercise having to bring and log in like animals and do the heavy lifting. So I I think speaking to the visceral feel and how kind of realistic so much of it feels in terms of just being able to kind of get a sense of, you know, the heat and the sweat and the smell and the oppressive nature of just the environment. I think this is just kind of an extension of that. It's very like, it just really flows perfectly in the way that it's all shot and put together. Um, just feels so seamless and perfect. You know, the first thing that Gunnar Hansen did to prepare for the role was he got the boots he was going to wear and he started running through fields, you know, to get, and he said he, he started getting pretty fast after a while. And because uh, he was in pretty bad shape, he said, when he started. But by the time he got going, by the time they got to shooting, he was uh, he was doing all right out there, you know. And, and then having to do it in a mask um, <laughs> in the dark. He's like the original Ben Hanscom in It. The original Ben going to prove the track coach wrong. Um, I think... One of the things I appreciate about this scene too, and you see it when Sally hits the branch and then like springs right up. Like you see her mind snap in this scene. I mean, rightfully so. And you see like her body is now on pretty much autopilot for the rest of the movie. Um, and I love the choice that, that, that Marilyn Burns makes here. Like it's scary to watch. Like her will to survive is so great that like she is just... There's no thinking. It's just move, move, move. And then she runs into the barbecue shack and you have the great interaction with her and Jim Seidel, the cook, where you see the film like really, because at this point, all three of the Sawyers, like you don't know how they connect with one another. And you think if anything, the cook is going to be like the next victim. And then you notice like the what is actually in the barbecue. You look in the pits and there's an arm, there's a leg, there's a torso. And before the cook even comes in with the broom 
and the burlap sack, you're like, mm-hmm. something is wrong. And she seems to be piecing it together there. She's like, am I seeing this or am I just in this state where I'm imagining this, you know, that's kind of what I, cause she has this look on her face. That's trying to piece it together, but just because of everything she's been going through for the past, however much time that she's been running through the woods from Leatherface, um, has just, she's not able to put it together entirely until he walks in with that sack and he's so nice about it. You, you, you just, just, just get in, you know, it'll make it a lot easier, you know? Well, it's him piecing it together too, because like, she's kind of piecing together a connection. Like this is him at, at, he's like, okay. Like he, he now knows like, okay, Leatherface must've killed her friends. Now she, he's getting, he's chasing hers. Like, okay. Like now I know uh, kind of what the rest of the evening's going to be like. Let me go get the sack and the broom. And uh, and and it's a uh, and the way that it works for the pacing is just so good because like we have this you know very long chasing and then like um it, you know just the length of it so then once uh she and and then once like he gets there and then we like kind of know that like oh this is not good for her so it's like you know we really feel that same feeling that she feels because like she like gets there and thinks that she's at uh, has safety and it's like nope it's just uh, another level onto this and then it's just like um it, it, it's very heartbreaking and especially the the uh the car ride back is like very heartbreaking because he's like antagonizing her and he's like talking shit the whole time and poking her with the broom and like her muffled screams through the bag are just like, just so, oh man, like they're harrowing. Uh, and, and it just like that, that scene just feels like uh, extra mean, um, you know, cause like, again, do, do, do we need this scene? No, not really, but I'm glad we have it here because it's just like, again, like this is where, you know, we really see uh, the, the, um, uh, the the cook is the the one of the of the family that he's the one that like actually takes joy in this you know so it's like that's what is extra like scary about it but also it's like very darkly comedic as well well and i think it speaks to what we talked about earlier with this not really being planned you know it's not like he was at the ready expecting you know her or someone else from this group to come by and then he would have to um you know get him back He's like, oh, right. <laughs> She's here. Well, now that I know what's up, I, she, I can't let her go. I have to take her. And I, I really like the dissonance of him being like, get in the bag. Just get in the bag. It's going to be easier for both of us because I am not the muscle of the family. Really don't want to have to fight you. Just get in the bag. So, yeah, I think it's a really, you know, I think once we get into the chase sequence, And then obviously moving forward, I think we start to just feel the levels of disorientation and disconnect that Sally um, is experiencing as well, because it it feels very nightmarish. Oh, 100%. 100% that. And to your point, Devon, about the cook enjoying it, if he doesn't want to enjoy it, it's like the real tragedy here. Like you see it here when him trying to be like gently cajole her into the bag at first. But by the time he gets her in there... He gets a perverse pleasure out of like whacking Sally with the stick and then doing it again, like just to your point, like the hard jabs in the car. Um, and you see it later on in the dinner scene, like he says there's like no, no joy or no thrill in this for him. But once he gets into it, it's almost like he's com- yeah. compelled to do so. Um, and just little things about 
this family that separates them, that kind of give them this pathos where they're not, they don't believe they're villainous. They don't feel like what they're doing is wrong in any way. You get little moments like the cook going back into the barbecue joint once he's in the truck to shut the lights out. And then not only doing that, but getting back in the van and explicitly commenting like the cost of electricity will drive a man out of business. So he's like a businessman. He's a member of the community and he's got real world concerns, not just like we're going to be killing for the sake of killing, but he's like, I got to worry about paying the bills. I got to worry about the gas tanks being filled up. Um, And to me, like there's a reading of this movie where you can say the Sawyers aren't necessarily the bad guys, that these five young men and women intruded upon their home unannounced in a desolate rural part of the country no idea what their intentions were and they suffered consequences but also this is what happens when the only industry in the area the meat packing plant this is the consequence when profit is put over people and hundreds of persons are put out of jobs with no other options like there's not like, well, I mean, look at what happens in cities that used to rely on manufacturing or automobile uh, automobile assembly, where they're virtual graveyards now because there's nothing else to replace it. This is the end consequence of, of capitalism without any tethers to it is, okay, we got to survive somehow and we're going to survive by any means necessary you cannot there's almost like a there's almost like a real badge of honor to that yeah no it's like how i was saying before that um it, you know they it's like an obligation for them at this point now because like okay um you know not only are you know you are trespassing so we gotta do what we gotta do protect ourselves and then okay and we're not you know we're not only just gonna like you know kill you but like you know if we're gonna kill you well we might as well try to make use of what we can of you, you know, by, you know, doing what they do by taking the people and then cooking it in. Because, um, again, it, it just, it's a means to an end to them more than anything. Um, but, um, it is also just like kind of their own, um, you know, the, the, the the what they the amount of leisure that they give themselves for it though is the the what they kind of conflate to themselves that like okay well you know since you trespass and we can go ahead and do all of this you know um and they kind of rationalize it that way yeah and it's it, it's it's tough to ra- i mean in the end they we wouldn't look folks we're not we're not condoning cannibalism we're not condoning making furniture out of people's bones or lampshades out of their skin. I want to be very clear that we are anti that just so there's no, just so no one can come back and say later, well, you never said, but we move on. We get back to the house. We see the hitchhiker again. You're like, holy shit. It's the hitchhiker. You're putting the pieces together. Like you see this crazy fucking family now all together for the first time you start to see the dynamics you see where everybody lines up and that like the cook seems to be the patriarch of the family at this point except that he can still be kind of um, intimidated by the hitchhiker who doesn't mind telling him like you don't have a stomach for this leatherface and i are doing the real work here you're just a cook 
Um, and when we think about what is who typically has the role of cook in a family, it would be usually be the matriarch or the mom, especially in the 1970s. Yeah, for all we know, yeah, because um, the the hitchhiker, um, you know, makes it very clear that he's obviously not working. And Leatherface is pulling double duty, you know, because he actually does work at the meat plant, but then he's also doing what he has to do for the family as well. Wait, does he? I don't think Leatherface is employed by the meat plant. Because then the hitchhiker say he goes, because when he goes, uh, when Franklin asks the hitchhiker if he works there, he goes, no, I don't work there, but my brother does. I think he, he said my did. Brother I did. think he said I used to. One of the two. Um, mm-hmm. And it's possible that he used to work. I think that the idea is they're all out of work at this point. And I know in the remakes, he did work at the mm. meat plant. And that's like the impetus for the whole thing. Um, but I don't think anyone's there now. Like I know the, he said that I don't work there, but I was just there. And I think the idea is like the hitchhiker just keeps showing up there to kind of like raise hell <laughs> and they tolerate him to a degree is how I've kind of read that. One thing I didn't really notice until this last viewing was the interactions between the hitchhiker and Leatherface in the kitchen before before they go upstairs you know they're blowing raspberries at each other and they're just kind of these um yeah they're, they're acting like brothers but like you know six and four year old brothers you know um and i i just found that to be i don't know kind of funny but also um kind of telling as to what these dynamics are within the family they seem i guess just kind of stunted in a way but also um and but then the cook is 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 uh i i know he's older but he he comes across as kind of barely like teenager at best you know <laughs> uh just with the way they they all interact it's really interesting he's like mo howard like he, yeah he, the more and more i watch this the more i can see where hooper is coming from when he says i made the second one a comedy because no one saw the comedy of the first one because like it is purely three stooge level of comedy with with um, Mo, with the cook being Mo Howard, the the hitchhiker being Larry Fine, and Leatherface. Actually, actually, I would say Leatherface is more Larry in that he's much more stoic, and and uh, mm-hmm. the hitchhiker being the curly mm-hmm. of the bunch. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I could see that too. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and like, and there's something like you know, like animalistic in the way that they act too, because like uh, the when the way that they they like scream with sally you know they like scream with her and they are like literally like howling like coyotes at this point um you know they they've already kind of kind of gone fully past like the point of um you know behaving in in the way that uh human beings would um as far as but yet they still act as if they are you know treating her to dinner amongst all this uh, stuff like oh yeah no we are you know here sit at the table we have you over but also like you know it's fascinating that they treat her as as the meal but also as a guest at the same time in a weird way (laughs) and then the hitchhiker asks if 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 she likes Leatherface's new face and i kind of i hadn't really thought about that before but i'm wondering is it supposed to be one of her friends (laughs) <laughs> I know that's done specifically in the remake, but uh, in this one, I think it's sort of just maybe just 
indicating, you know, a different mask. Which has always been concerning to me because, you know, Leatherface, he, you know, if you're going to make a skin mask, you got to like do it. You got to let it dry out. And like, you know, I feel like there's a process, but like if you're just cutting skin off and then just throwing it straight on your face, I feel like that's a health hazard for him amongst other things. (laughs) Well, it's not going to do well for his skin. Um, like his actual skin. It's going to clog pores. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to your point, Ryan, I think like I I think that moment is more almost trying to get validation for Leatherface oh, okay. as yeah. well. Like, mm-hmm. you know, hey, you know, do you like, do you like uh, a Leatherface, what he's doing now? Um, you know, it's, again, I think we're looking at folks that are kind of operating on kind of this lower maturity level where, um, it's you know really about manipulating responses and um, driving kind of the tension that way. It's really, but yeah, I think in the the remake, they just kind of straight up have I think it's Kipper's face as the map mm. at that point. But and I actually find it, I I I think that the moment wouldn't be served any better if it was like Pam's face. Sure. I just like that it's just a really uncomfortable. I'm, I'm stating the thing that my brother is wearing someone's face, just in case you didn't notice. And now I want to. I mean, it's it it. could be a little bit of that, and then I always also see like a little bit of throughout this uh, dinner scene is like they have this weird sense of support for each other. Like, you know, like really like of him being like, Hey, like tell what, like, like he knows it's weird that Leatherface cuts faces off, but he's like, Hey, like it would make my brother happy if you, you know, acknowledge that you like his face. And then like, and later on, like, especially with the way that they treat grandpa, once they bring him out and then like later whenever they want him to you know kill her because he's the best at it and like they are literally constantly like he's the best at it. like go grandpa you got this and like they, there's this weird sense of camaraderie that they have for each other that is uh somewhat heartwarming but not but it, it's so funny to me well it, it seems very like like when you go over to a friend's house for dinner for the first time and you're trying to figure out like what what are the protocols here like Mm. um you know are we going to say grace before the meal um you know what what are the manners that are expected and so i feel like it's almost kind of mimicking a little bit of that um as well like make sure that you say something nice about you know my my mom figure my all of that so yeah i just think it adds again to kind of that nightmarish disoriented um kind of aspect of the scene there's a level of comeuppance too in the hitchhiker's tone to sally like when he pulls off the burlap sack and sees that it's sally from the van and he's like i thought you were in a hurry you know and and you see him taking this perverse joy that it's her because he's like, oh, yeah, you, you're not so high and mighty now. Like, you, your friends judged me. Your friends were disgusted by me. And now your friends are all dead. Um, and you see, like, there's an added bonus to mm-hmm. the fact that it's this girl uh, that is it's tied to the chair. And to your point about, like, pride in the family, Devon, like, one of the things that struck me watching this again was the level of gentleness that they hit, despite all of the insanity. And just how kind of like clumsy everything is and how frantic everything is. When Leatherface and the hitchhiker carry Grandpa down the stairs, 
they are so gentle and moving. They take tremendous care because like it is like the, a beloved member of their family and they want to be careful. There's no sloppiness there. They're very deliberate in their pacing. Uh, and then you get, I think, probably the most disturbing scene <laughs> in the whole movie and that you think this is just like a corpse. Like you're like, there's obviously, why are they lugging this dead body around? And then they cut Sally's finger, which Gunnar Hansen did for real because they're 12 hours into a shoot and the fake knife won't cut the fake blood bag. And this is real, damn it. We're not fucking around anymore. So I am going to take a real knife and cut her finger for real. And she is so in such a headspace. She doesn't even fucking know it until later on. Like years later, they tell her they did this. And she's like, you did what to my finger? And we are going to cram this dirty, bloody finger into John Duggan's mouth. Uh, and he is going to suckle it like a baby because that's what you fucking do when you shove a bloody finger into a 104-year-old man's I've, mouth. I remember being around. so confused. like Because like you said, like I thought he was a corpse. But then I was like, did they just reanimate him with a little bit of her blood and her finger? I was like, it's always... It, I remember it confuse the hell out of me but then like yeah like it, it's a scene that like every time i see it it still makes me just like squeal a little bit and i'm just like i'm like that's just so gross like and like the the then like he literally like the like faces like that he's making and, like and just everybody again like she's screaming and everybody else is laughing and screaming too while this is all happening and uh this is when you just like feel the the loudness of this movie also well, i think this is also the We've been very clear that we don't condone cannibalism and all of that here. Although, um, I think that to push that further, it's not about creating sympathy for these characters. But I think up until this point, there's almost this comedic absurdity to it and almost an understanding of like, yeah, they just are not wanting these people to come and fuck up their house. So that's what they're doing. Like, you have a bunch of flies circling and you want them out. And bonus is that you also get to eat them for dinner. But this is, you know, when you get into the scene and as it's playing out, all of that is completely shed away. There's no understanding. There's no empathy, sympathy. It's all for Sally. Because you're like, this is totally fucked up. These people are completely fucked up and depraved. Yeah, it's, I feel like it's, there's still that tone of comedy an absurdness to it but it just has a, a more kind of menace to this than the previous scenes have yeah i think and you yeah. mentioned the the noise of it i think there's also a lot of like a, a sort of a visual noise i mean starting with those extreme close-ups of her eyeballs uh where you can see like dust in her eye and all sorts of things it's just nuts where you can i can't imagine seeing that on a big screen i think seeing the bloodshot eyeball that blown up huge on a screen would just be kind of it would be it would make me squirm and then and then you have just you know then of course the audio sound of the screaming and them mocking her and everything that happens in that scene it's just wild there is a lampshade made of a human face and no Right. Direct attention mm -hmm. is called to it. It is just a thing that is in the shot. Like I think yeah. I did not never notice that until like watching it this past spring. Swear to God, never saw that. I'm like, wait a minute. 
There is a fucking human face lampshade here. How have I never noticed this in the dozens of time I've seen this movie? Because no attention is drawn to it. It's just a mm-hmm. thing. You know, and, uh, and then there's also the, the little stand that is like chicken feet with a chicken head on it. You know, it's just bizarre, crazy stuff. It's a craft project from a kid who happens to have human animal or human parts, animal parts to play with, you know, and build things out of. Leatherface is the first hipster artist. I mean, let's say it here. Right. You know, he would have fit right in in the Austin art scene with these weird ass creatures. You know, there's a a different take on this movie. Like instead of in part two, them doing chili cook-offs, like Leatherface is traveling the country selling avant-garde furniture for yuppies made out of like human skin and bones, you know, I mean, his, et- his Etsy page would be just crazy. Mm-hmm. It'd yeah. be super <laughs> wildly successful. It's upcycling. It's upcycling. He's going to farmer's markets. He's mm-hmm. creating a brand and again, waste not whatnot. Um, as someone that worked with butchering, I think that that's a really important thing, but yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I really appreciate to like, again, going back to kind of the noise of the scene and it really ratcheting up because I think if it doesn't start to escalate here, just the franticness, the, the final moments just seem super jarring. And so Mm -hmm. I like kind of the crescendo that Mm -hmm. we're building to. Oh yeah. Let's talk about that building because Again, Brian, you spoke earlier about the smell of this movie. So to put you in here, it's 110 degrees outside. And they're shooting in the daytime. They shoot for 27 straight hours. Because John Dugan says, I am not getting made up again. Like, you have me for this. Like, I didn't know it would take this long to make me up. You're going to finish this. And when you finish, you're done. Um, You have the windows covered and blankets trapping all the heat in because you don't want to, you want to, you know, have that day and night, changes. right? Yeah. So you have that. So all this heat is trapped in. Now it's about 115 to 120 degrees. You're bringing in real food. So you get this like food that is cooking and rotting in 120 degrees. And as that food starts to deteriorate to the point where it can't be used, you bring in the replacement, which has only been sitting in about 100 degree temperature. So it hasn't achieved the same level of rot. Gunnar Hansen has been wearing the same clothing for four to six weeks. And it's just his uh, Maryland burns, like bell bottoms, are stiff with crusted blood at this point. People are going outside to vomit. And when they go outside to get a breath of fresh air, they are hit with the smell of rotting animal carcasses that are being burned in like a gasoline pit. So there's just no respite from any of this. And Hansen describes it in his book as like the moment that he stopped acting and actually went a little bit crazy for a minute where when they're like trying to kill Sally and like with the hammer, which by the way, like they replaced the hammer with like a foam bit, but the rod was steel. And you have John Dugan trying to hit Marilyn Burns in the head and he can't see what he's doing for shit. So he's hitting her with the steel bit of the rod and she's like getting split open at this point. And there is real blood in gore in her hair because again, they're not messing around. Um, and I think she, she said like her thought was, well, at least this will look good on screen. Um, 
Hansen says, like, when Ed Neal starts yelling, kill the bitch, kill the bitch, um, he, Hansen, when, when Miss Sally starts to run away, Hansen gets up and says, yes, kill the bitch. He was going to do it. And it's not until he turns around that he's like, oh, yeah, I am in a movie. I should not really kill this person. Like, he just snaps <laughs> at one point. Like, he's done. I mean, it's like, yeah, it feels like a like Dante's Inferno moment, like, for, like, the film. But then I guess, like, also, like, the... the um with what's going on the set and like, I mean, but you, and you feel that through the screen, you know, like, um, and you know, again, like if, if at the end of the day, if she was just like, you know, I hope the shot looks good, you know, like, um, you know, again, like all the kudos to her, um, for, you know, putting that and I want to leave it on the screen in in that fashion. But, um, and, and I feel like, you know, at this moment, you know, because it, it, Sally has literally been just like confined the whole time and all she's been able to do is scream. Um, and, and I feel like people sometimes give her some flack for, for, for that as, as far as a final girl of her not being a, one of the proactive final girls. Um, but she's, you know, but she is, the very reactionary you know in the fact of like as soon as she does get the opportunity to finally escape you know she is out that window and like you know ready to to run again like because like you said like her her mind has been checked out at this point and her body has been like just like kind of twitching waiting for that that moment and so um as far as you know maybe her not being as proactive I feel like the what she endures physically and then psychologically, though, is a lot greater than like what some other final girls kind of go through in their in their final girl circuits. She never gives them a good target. I think it's the best thing about Sally is that she never stops moving. So mm-hmm. even when yeah. she's getting yeah. like you see this happen where like they just get dragged away, which I mean, I probably would just die of fright. So who am I to say? But like she never stops moving or struggling. Like when they put her head over, mm-hmm. they drag her to the to the slot bucket. Like she is like fidgeting and trying to break free. Mm-hmm. When they bend her over, like she they she never gives them an easy target. And that's what's saying. You see, even at the end, when, when the hitchhiker gets fed up with Grandpa's ineptitude, like so much for, you know, sixty kills in five minutes, old man. Um, <laughs> right. I am doubting the veracity of that story. <laughs> watching him, um, when he finally goes for the sledgehammer himself, she like not only like gets out and runs free, but you see her whole body like shake. So they can't just grab her mm-hmm. like she's like. She's like basically doing a crossover move, trying to break the hitchhiker's ankles, you know, and gets out. She's of like vibrating oh, at yeah. this point. Like, <laughs> well, one thing that stands out to me, I think, about Sally, and it really becomes, I think, apparent in kind of her final girl circuit, is that this really taps into, I think, her her fight to simply survive, and it's not a fight to save anyone else because everyone else is dead. It's just a fight to save herself. There's something that's so devastating when you think about kind of where she's at at the very end, but probably sinking in, maybe sinking in in this moment, is that who, like, who does she go to? Like, who, who is her support system after she leaves this experience? If she makes it out, 
Where does she go? Who's helping her? Because her brother is dead. Her boyfriend is dead. Friend dead. Friend dead. Um, she doesn't have the grandparents, obviously. They're dead. Um, the fact that she and her brother are coming to check in on, you know, the the state of the grandparents' uh, burial place. I don't know if, like, their parents are still alive. But there's just this sadness because with so many other final girls, it's like, well, they still have family. Mm-hmm. They still have their parents. They still have a friend, uh, a kid, someone that, you know, either is on the other side or that they're, you know, fighting with to protect. And she doesn't have that. This is just her being scrappy as mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. to be like, I want to live. You will not kill me. I'm not going out here. Agreed. And I think what you said is often the tragedy of the final girl in that they're final. Like even when the camera stops rolling and the credits go up, all of their friends are dead. And there's a, and there's very few movies that tackle that um, from that perspective, which is one of the things I, I've seen a couple that are pretty good. Um, I've always had the idea, like when this movie, and we'll talk about the final scene now, when Sally, when Sally gets on the back of the pickup truck and it's rolling away and she's like laughing, uh, she's laughing hysterically and clutching and just yelling go over and over. Like her body has left the Sawyer residence. Like her body has left it, but her mind, I feel like never left. I just feel, I've always espouse that like part of her never escaped the household because i just don't see coming back from that no because when you think of the rest of the film like past the gas station scene like she doesn't speak like the rest of the film like the rest of the film is literally her just like guttural sounds and reactions to uh the events happening like that is her like humanity broken at this point and like you said like so like when we do see that uh, her in the back of the truck, like she is like, yeah, like she, her, that part of her is dead in, in, in that house. Uh, oh yeah. But you still, even in this final scene, which is horrific as I feel that ending is, it's still wickedly funny. I mean, you still get mm-hmm. like the hitchhiker running up and then like Leatherface, like right behind him. And then the hitchhiker gets splattered by an 18 wheeler with the phenomenal name Black Maria. I mean, you see that on the, you're like, God damn, this is beautiful. And I love that like the driver gets out, steps out of the truck, sees Leatherface, does a big nope, and just like runs right <laughs> back into it. Well, and then and they like go in and then Leatherface, uh, silly boy, is like slashing at the door when the window is already down. The window's down. So it's like, buddy, just just reach in and grab it. But and as they're trying to crawl through the other end, uh, love that. But I, and I love that the guy grabs the giant wrench. But instead of like, you know, like I think you uh, he could have gotten a couple swings in. But no, he just throws it once throws at right him. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, it does lead to uh, Leatherface, you know, chainsaw on his own leg. Uh, but still, like, I feel like he could have uh, used the wrench a little bit more effectively. <laughs> yeah, but I think that that's, again, you're in such a frantic moment. Like, I think one of the, for lack of a better word, the charm of the franticness of this film is that it, you know, you, you don't, yeah. If you were in a situation, this is how you would want to do it. 
but mm-hmm. there's literally like you're a truck driver here in like this is your experience right now i don't know how practical anything I oh mean. i i love how he doesn't ask any questions either yeah he, he does not ask a single question he mm. just instantly is like oh, well let's fucking figure let's deal with this <laughs> let yeah. me grab my wrench like i love it but i but it's also so interesting because and I think going back to Sally in that moment, <laughs> it's a trust thing as well. I mean, I know that we've talked about her being just kind of disconnected. And I love the observation about her not really saying words after a certain point, because I think that that's something that's really um, a, a good thing to pick up on. But even having gone through what she's experienced, I like would I get in the car with someone? What, like, where would my boundary place be of, like, this may be my my out, but you could also be another Sawyer that's going to just turn right around. Or I have no idea. Um, and I think that's played up a little bit more in the remake. But, I mean, obviously with the Sheriff character, but... Um, I, yeah, to me, that's always something interesting too. Like, of course, in when we would be experiencing something like that, a car coming by, we would see that as an exit. We would 100% be like, you know, fuck stranger danger. I, I, I will get in this car, no questions asked. Um, I will force myself upon this person's vehicle so that I can get away. Not thinking about, uh, well, what if they just turn right around what are your options do you know what i mean it's like it gets to a point where like you still the hitchhiker has been dealt with but you still have a dude with the chainsaw coming at you and you're at this point on your last leg your your the adrenaline is going to give out you're probably concussed from getting so many blows to the back of the head um and i i still like always see this as autopilot i do love your point like what if the you know the um guy in the pickup truck is just another member. What if he like immediately does a U-turn and goes back into the driveway? Like, Hey, look what I found. Like how <laughs> awful of it. It's kind of like the end of like house of a thousand corpses where when your final girl gets in the truck with Sid Haig, who was like nothing to do with the family all movie. And then Bill Mosley sits up and you're like, Oh, that's a cheat right there. And it's also morning by this point too. So it's like, this has been a, an entire evening of just fucking d- disaster madness. Uh, and you really feel that like, and, and like that, like kind of like when you're partying through the night and it's like, Oh shit, like I'm, it's 7am and like, I have not stopped. And it's like, you know, like that, that ache is uh, you feel that the day to night transitions in this movie add, to how disorienting it is because you go from like jerry getting killed to you smash cut to a full moon and then you go from this long night to when sally jumps out the window that's a brightly lit hazy morning and it's so jarring as a viewer to see that um i think that definitely adds to the viewer disorientation um one of the things like that when hansen was filming the scene knowing that he was going to get the chainsaw through the leg he asked hooper like how are we gonna do this and hooper's response was like don't worry about it it's gonna be like the last thing we shoot and hansen didn't realize (laughs) until later on what that meant was don't worry if you really hurt yourself we won't need you anymore not don't worry about it we'll have something safely done so it's basically like a metal plate strapped to his leg a piece of steak over it and a blood bag 
and he has to fall perfectly. Otherwise, he could get the wrong part of his leg, which he did. But he said he burned his leg pretty badly because the heat mm-hmm. from the chainsaw um, mm. bit on that metal plate just like so hurt him so badly. He also said that, again, Marilyn Burns was so slow and had so difficult a time <laughs> getting into the truck. They kept having to do retake after retake after retake because like Hans just kept catching up to her. And you see this in the movie, like he catches up to her and then just starts like sawing at the truck while Burns is getting Mm. in. I mean, he does everything short of like give her a boost to push her in. (laughs) Um, And I think at this point, like poor Marilyn Burns was just so exhausted that like, fuck it, that's what we'll use. Like, what else can you do? Um, and you get that last shot of the movie. I think one of the most iconic shots of all horror where you get sol- the solar flares for one adding to that heat and, and Leatherface like swinging that chainsaw around with reckless abandon and dancing with it. And then it just smashes to black and God, it's so fucking good. And you think of like yeah. what Toby Hooper should have been like, and he has some great movies. Like I don't, he's not like a one trick pony. This is not an accident, but oh my god, the end of this movie is so fucking perfect. The 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 like coloring of it at this point just feels so unnatural and it like feels like fully uh transformed into this like, you know, the the end of this like fever dream that we've just experienced, you know, and it like it, and it, yeah, it it just ends in such a way that it's like you know, she goes away and then we are instead of again like, you know, we we do follow her for we follow Sally for a hot minute, but I do love that we don't end the film on Sally. We ended on Leatherface, like um, on this, you know, that this is uh, probably just another day for real, you know, and, and this is going to happen again, most likely. And, um, and that is fascinating, but yeah, it's just, it's so gorgeous. And uh, it, I don't know, just like the way he's moving with it, it feels uh, just poetic and in, in, in such a weird, dirty way. I, I, I love it. The fact that uh, three of our four killer family members are still alive, you know, in the end of this movie um, is it's so nihilistic, you know, mm-hmm. it's yeah. like, you know, you're, you're just going to run into this again. Don't think you're safe wherever you are. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think also just, you know, going back to when they pick up the hitchhiker, they're, for the most part, unassuming. Um, So, again, it's just, we talk about the trauma that Sally has to work through for the rest of her life as a survivor of this, but I I think part of that is, like, I I could never trust another human. Mm -hmm. I would always be afraid that at any point in time they're going to pull out a chainsaw or a sledgehammer. Um, so I I really like that point that, you know, the Sawyer family wins this round uh-huh. um, because Sally's left completely all alone and completely broken and everyone else is dead. Leatherface swinging the chainsaw at the end to me is a, a moment of triumph for him. Like every, mm-hmm. I got rid of all the bad people that were coming into my home. Yeah. They're all gone. Yeah. Bad people have gone. And it's also a warning. It's also like, if you come back around here again, this is what's waiting for you. So to me, it, it ends in a note of triumph for Leatherface and the Sawyers. And 
Hanson is talked about in this moment. That's the last thing he shoots. And he's tired. He's frustrated. He's like covered in filth and stink. Um, and he talks about swinging this chainsaw ever so closer at Hooper and at the camera people, not trying to hit them, but he's like, you have been fucking with me for weeks. Now it's my turn to fuck with you. And them having to like back up and back up and back up because they're Mm -hmm. scared. Like, and he's like, I'm not trying to hit them, but I'm not trying to not hit them either. Uh, He talks about it in his book, which I only, I can't quote from it because I only have it as the audio book, but it's basically him getting out all of the, pent up frustration and anger and aggression from the hellishness that was making this movie, pouring that into the final moments of, of this movie. And I think like you can't fake that. Like, again, it goes down to like, are you acting at this point? Like you just can't fake that vibe. I think it's just, it's perfect. So good. Well, and I think it goes back to what you mentioned, Mike, I think it was you earlier about stemming Mm -hmm. and the fact that, this has been probably an overload. Not, I hate this because I feel like we're walking down the let's uh, analyze and um, kind of sympathize with Leatherface. Mm-hmm. But like he, like he's probably feeling really taxed and overwhelmed to the max. And this is probably an extension of that. Like, let me get out this energy. Like it's done. I don't have to be on chase mode right now because the person is gone. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we noted that, especially before things really kick into high gear, there's these moments where he just seems really upset and uncomfortable and trying to process, like, what's going on. So I feel like there's a little bit of that, too. And I think it's just what makes it also visually stunning is that it is very, there's a beauty to it, but it's horrific it's i don't want to say shocking but it's so like you don't see anything like it anywhere else um it's just really kind of bizarre in a way so i i I think it's just a culmination of everything that we've kind of hit Mm -hmm. on of just him physicalizing it i mean it's really the only the one time he's like been big in the movie like you know everything has been very kept to himself and very close and like you know there's one scene during like the dinner scene where he's like kind of howling with everybody but um but he besides that and the this final moment like he hasn't really been very expressive and it's like yeah this finally this like one like last big moment for him it's also a big fuck you to the Hayes code when you think of like where we are now like this is new hollywood this is like a hollywood now where the bad guys can win because with the Hayes code this point 40 years the monster had to die at the end of the movie that there had to be like don't worry about like you know alfred hitchcock presents and all of the television shows like they would have these grim endings and then hitchcock would have to come back on the screen and say don't worry about it like the bad guy was apprehended by law enforcement a short time later and he was got his comeuppance but this is like no like the bad guys can win now the gloves are off like guess what sometimes shitty things happen to good people and there's no reason for it except they walked through the wrong door at the wrong time and met the wrong people. And this is what became mm-hmm. of them. In a way, like Leatherface swinging that saw is a big F you to all the restrictions that had been put on horror movies for decades before this. So, oh, sorry, Brian, you first. 
No, no, that's that's good. Um, so really quick, like part of the legacy of this movie is the release of the movie, and part of why we still talk about it is because like the release was so convoluted. Um, it takes about a year to edit. Everybody thinks like nothing is going to come of this. Uh, and Sally Richardson is one of the editors. Like she really helps stitch this thing together. Hooper's in there every day as well, like piecing it together. Just like the eyeball scene alone, I think took two weeks to piece together from what I've read. Everybody passes on it. Every studio, Columbia passes on it. Warner Brothers passes on it. MGM passes on it. Roger Corman takes a pass on it. Like even he's like, nope, <laughs> not for me. Um Which is wild because AIP, I know Roger Corman wasn't at AIP at that time, but AIP had uh, picked up Last House on the Mm -hmm. Left, which is far more graphic Mm -hmm. than this movie is. Yeah. So William Scarin, who is one of the larger investors, he had 40K in the movie. He's the head of the Texas Film Board at the time. He connects Hooper with Bryanston Films. And Bryanston... Um, specifically like Joseph the Whale Perino, his brother, Big Anthony, Big Tony Perino, and Louis Butchie Perino, which if you want to make a guess, folks, like they're in the mafia, but they're also like really good film distributors. They're the folks that were behind getting Deep Throat into theaters. And Deep Throat is this this massive revolution in 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 adult filmmaking and adult films and it's like a date movie like you would you know you and the wife would get in your saturday best and like let's go watch deep throat together it was a cultural phenomenon i mean again woodward and bernstein the two men responsible for breaking one of the largest stories in political history nicknamed their undercover operative deep throat because of this movie they were also responsible for like getting Return of the Dragon, uh, Bruce Lee's next to last picture in theaters, Andy Warhol's Frankenstein. They come up with the poster for the movie with Pam on the meat hook, Leatherface revving the saw and then big block letters, who will survive and what will become of them. Again, the poster that prevented me from getting laid for many a year as it hung over <laughs> my bed um these guys were the these guys were the a24 of the 70s in in the 70s of absolutely (laughs) um they pick up the picture and unfortunately what happens is like hooper starts losing more and more of the profit and control over it and it's he's losing losing his share everybody else who worked for peanuts but were taking points they get like an eighth of what they were, like nothing compared to what they thought to the point where Hanson said his first check was like $47 for this movie, which the final number of what this has made, like nobody really knows. It's at least 30 million on about a $140,000 budget, maybe upwards of like a hundred million bucks when all is said and done. But Bryanson was like, nope, like you cannot see our books. You don't have the balls to sue us. Like, we're part of the Colombo crime factory uh, as part of Florida. Um, but what's also going on here, part of the reason they don't pay Hooper is there's no money to pay them. Because by this time, Deep Throat has been so tied up in the courts for obscenity reasons and states having state after state suing 
the filmmakers and the producers and the distributors of this movie that they're all the money they're bringing in, which they estimate might be upwards of 600 million, whatever hasn't been laundered and funneled out lost <laughs> to history is basically tied up in litigation. So they're now selling their rights to Texas Chainsaw Massacre to other distributors and dividing up that pie even more. They it, it's the literal definition mm-hmm. of like, oh, where's where's the money at? And they're like, ah, oh, it's here, it's there, yes. it's it's it sums over there. Like what? And they they dare Hooper and the producers to sue, and the, and Hooper and their and friends they're suing each other because they're like, uh, you screw and, and, and Hooper like you you sold the rights of this movie. Um, and I think Scarin sold the rights of this movie without letting everyone else know how much they were. I think they got like 225000 up front and that quickly went away. Um, it's not until I think 1981 that the original producers get the rights back to the movie. Um, you also see uh, Hooper when he talks about this movie in the press. Like there's, to speak of that nihilism again, he's like, it's a film about meat. It's about people who've gone beyond animal meat and rats and dogs and cats. And I'm sorry, I'm going to use this word, crazy, retarded people going beyond the animal. So again, he's taking that nihilistic tone to it. Like there's this idea that this movie is morally reprehensible and doesn't have anything to offer. Uh, Johnny Carson rails against the movie. And it's weird to think about now, but in a time when there are only three stations like Carson is the king of late night tens of mm-hmm. millions of people are tuning into him every night he is like the entertainment tastemaker um Ebert gives it a middling like he recognizes the power of it but is like who the fuck would want to watch this uh Rex Reed loves the movie Vincent Canby of the New York Times loves the movie like says like this is as it gets preserved into the Museum of Modern Art in the eight early 80s Canby goes to bat for it. Um, the BBFC, the British uh, Board of Film Film Commission, their um, Secretary of State, Stephen Murphy, calls it a fictionalized documentary, doesn't hate the movie, but says no amounts of cuts are going to save it from us censoring it. He basically tells them the tone of this movie is so terrifying that like, unless you cut everything except the kids driving in the van before they pick up the hitchhiker... There's nothing you're going to do to save this movie. So it's banned until like 1999. It's got this weird legacy to it. Obviously, it's now regarded as one of the greatest, not only horror movies, but movies of all time, one of the greatest independent movies of all time. It's, if not my favorite horror movie, it's the one I think is the best of all time. It's, to me, the rare movie that it gets scarier every time I watch it because I know it's coming and I just feel so helpless it's like watching Gage run into the road in Pet Cemetery. You know what's coming, but you can't stop it, and you feel so fucking powerless. Uh, final thoughts from y'all, because uh, I've gone on like a windbag here. What are our final wrap-up thoughts on Texas Chainsaw Massacre? It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, it, you know, it's all right. It's no, but, uh... it's no you know, leprechauns back in the hood. uh this movie is uh it's incredible um every time i watch it it's uh i get that i get that same feeling like that jolt of adrenaline like as i'm watching and like uh the as it ramps up and you know and i'm laughing along with it every time and 
Um, and, and I find, you know, again, like just something new each time, um, to appreciate and, and, and because again, like seeing the, the remake first, um, before seeing this, I definitely had one preconceived notion of it going in and, uh, and the fact that, um, this is a completely different beast, but I also do love the 2003 remake as well. I feel like they just, uh, they coexist well together in that way. Um, but this one just, yeah, it, it just has this energy that no other film has, especially for at that time. Like I just, I could not imagine like seeing this and in 1974, like, um, it's just uh, wild to me. So, um, you know, I, I definitely uh, don't get tired of it. The pacing of it is impeccable. You know, we are 77 minutes, um, you know, at the credits. Like, I mean, like this thing is in and out. It's relentless. Um, the performances. And again, like Sally, um, it does not get enough credit as um, one, of the, one of the top tier final girls, like just for the sheer amount of what she goes through and overcomes um, you know, despite the, the state that she's put in, um, is, is wild. And, um, she's, uh, yeah. And between her and Leatherface, they are just, um, two on to, to have, to have two respective of like who I would put on my final, you know, Mount Rushmore of final girls, but then also on my Mount Rushmore of like slashers Mm -hmm. to have them both in the same film is, um, is a lot. So yeah, I love this movie. I think it is, along with Night of the Living Dead, uh, it defined modern horror. You know, there's sort of this delineation between classical horror and modern horror. And I think this is where it starts, you know. Um, Everything that's come since, I think, uh, owes something to it, it seems. Uh, There's very little that doesn't. (laughs) Um, It's, I mean, so much has already been said. I don't know that I can add much more than that, but it still holds up and it's still um, just a visceral and shocking energetic film after all these years, mm-hmm. almost 50. I think it's just a really great film that knows exactly what it wants to do, um, which I think speaks to its pace. I think it speaks to its energy. It doesn't mess around. It's not wanting to bring in, you know, extra fat um leatherface trims all of it away and so um i really love it i think like i had mentioned before as a film to show folks that haven't seen it because just like with my first time seeing it you think that you're going to get just this bloodbath and there's a constraint there but it's that constraint makes it so much more horrific in so many moments. There's a devastation with her fate that I think a lot of the other final girls, they may be the last one standing, but again, they have something that, you know, they're, they're going home to maybe. And you don't get that sense with Sally. And Sally is just so sweet um, and kind to everyone that's around her. Um, you know, she, she has really sweet moments with Franklin. Um, yeah, they're a little standoffish as the film goes on but that's natural you know they're in a high stress situation not knowing what's going on so um she just there's just this sweetness and kindness to her that 
just adds a layer of just sadness when you see what, you know, is kind of left of her mentally. So, yeah, I think it's incredible. I think it's impact, you know, everything that's come after cannot be overstated. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, It'll do. <laughs> um, it's impossible to like underst- to overstate how important this movie is to the horror genre and what would come after it. And it's, I think it's to me, I led the show with this it, it, way back when we first started recording part one of the big four. Um, it is the Halloween Elm street, Friday the 13th. And this, I think it is the best of the movies. I actually, the, I, I never get bored watching this movie. Um, it's the most up and down franchise but it also was never meant to be a franchise. It was just meant to be this one standalone work. And it's just such an incredible piece of artistry that there's just such technical skill behind it, but there's also such a down in the muck and down in like, you're no longer performing. You're just trying to survive. You're just trying to survive getting through making this movie. You feel that come out every time you watch. And there's always something new I pick up, like watching this. I just pick up some little detail or nuance. And we we barely touched on some of the socioeconomic concerns of this movie, where it's really talking about the death of the 60s counterculture and what capitalism is doing to vast swaths of the country. Um there's a phenomenal, I'm really looking forward to diving into this book, Tricky Dick versus Leatherface, where it talks about how Nixonian politics and the downfall of Nixon influenced subliminally the making of this movie. There's just so much there mm-hmm. under the surface that makes it more than just your everyday work about horror movie. It's really, it'll never grow old. And it's why, like, this was the first movie I got nervous to cover since we covered Alien. Uh, way back and I think our first or into our end of our first year of doing the show because like I just want to do this movie justice because it deserves it um, and I just like I, I felt like the one movie where I'm like am I up to the task about talking about this movie and I hope we did it justice um, it's our longest episode ever when you stitch both things together and I think we hit it um, so yeah that is our that is our breakdown of 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Nicole, where can our listeners find more of you? So you can find more of me uh, on the Bodies of Horror podcast, which is a podcast where I look at horror films through the lens of disability, kind of examining uh, characters with disabilities and uh, disability themes um, because I am disabled so um yeah you can find me there and that is uh on the anatomy of a scream uh podcast feed so not only if you subscribe there do you get bodies of four but you also get lots of other goodness Mm -hmm. as well excellent Devon, how about yourself? Uh, you can find me. Uh, I host the Bloody Blunt Cinema Club podcast with my buddy Garrett McDowell, uh, where every month we break down a different subgenre or franchise within horror. So um, right now we are going to be tackling some coming-of-age films for the summer, um, as well as diving into the Predator franchise, including the new one uh, that will be released prey. So 
very excited for that. So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Bloody Blunts Pod, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Daddy Disco. Uh, well, you can find my writing at Bloody Disgusting and Manor Vellum, and I've got lots of stuff dropping there all the time, it seems. So I can't remember exactly what's coming up, but I got things coming up. Um, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane is my next piece that's coming up to uh, uh, Bloody Disgusting for my column there on classic horror, uh, pre-70s horror. Um, And you can also find uh, my podcast, which is uh, Movies for Life. We cover lots of genres. We cover some horror. And um, we've had some pretty popular horror episodes. We've covered Midnight Mass, uh, Doctor Sleep, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, then way back when we covered the original Nightmare on Elm Street. So, and we've done um, the first two Child's Play movies and all kinds of things. But usually we uh, focus on uh, two movies an episode that we each of us brings to the table that we each love on a certain topic. And uh, that's sort of the key to the show is that it's movies we love. Mm-hmm. And we um, try and dive into them. We see them through you know, each other's experience with him. Uh, me and my co-host, uh, Michelle Egan, who's also been on this show uh and you can find that uh i should say our next episode coming up is on another films on filmmaking on uh sunset boulevard and barton fink uh, which was a fun episode to do uh screenwriters uh, episode and then uh you can find that podcast online at on twitter at movie life pod and you can find me uh at brian d kuiper if you're interested in any of the writing stuff there excellent and you can find me at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can follow our show at Pod and Pendulum over Twitter. I'm trying to do a little bit more there again. Uh, and you can go to our site, podandthependulum.com, go through all our archives. Um, yeah, you can find my other show, Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, where we cover horror through the lens of mental health. Uh, we have a lot of like, uh, almost 100 episodes up now. I think we hit 100 episodes this month. So woot woot coming along. Um, but yeah, go ahead and do all those things. But listeners, if you have enjoyed this or other episodes, please take a moment, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Leaving us a rating and a review uh, is a way for us to know what you think but also when you leave us five stars and some kind words people new listeners and then find us a lot easier so we really appreciate that we hope you have enjoyed this breakdown of texas chainsaw uh, we'll be back shortly probably in two weeks i think i've got my own vacation coming up so we'll be back in two weeks to cover a movie that is drastically different in tone than this one to say the least uh, toby hooper's Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, Dogs Will Hunt. We'll be back in a couple. Thanks very much, y'all.